Christian Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Okay, Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Just take a glance at what we did last week. And what we did is we correlated in Deuteronomy 27, 9 through 11, where Moses tells the people to be silent and listen. This day you have become a people. Uh, he's preparing them to cross over Jordan as a people. Well, we also know that they had to be quiet at the crossing of the Reed Sea. So having these two benchmarks, there's something to go by. And then we could go over to Revelation 8.1. And it says, when the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. To me, just the, the correlation of the verses would tell us that this half hour of silence, uh, I, I see two possibilities here. I see that there is a crossing over. Some things are being parted. A way is being opened for Israel to press into their inheritance. And for that half hour, they can't say anything while he prepares the way for them to cross over. The second idea I have, and, and this one, you know, don't sign my name to it. It's just an idea. We know just based on our study of the angels of the four winds and the encampments in the wilderness and how the 12 tribes were supposed to pray and obey to intercede for the world and, and function in the role of those angels of the fourth four winds. Of course, you know, we had issues with that, with disobedience and rebellion. But nevertheless, humankind was placed on earth to pray and obey. The only thing I believe that's standing between a complete destruction of the world right now and the place where we are is that there are still believers. There are still righteous people who are interceding on behalf of the earth. And as long as they are interceding, they're functioning as these little temples of the Holy Spirit, and they've been scattered all over the earth. I don't know. Maybe you can tell by, I don't know if you would tell by number, but possibly you could look at different countries and say, you know what, the more biblically, we're using the Bible as the standard, the more righteous people within a country who are willing to actively pray, to actively intercede for their country, to walk in the righteousness of Yeshua, then it could be that there are fewer, you know, we might say natural disasters. You know, I don't think there's any nation right now that's exempt from trials and troubles. They're definitely, that's consistent. I think every nation right now is suffering in some way. But when you look at, when you weigh it all out, I think it's the believers of a country that stand between it and destruction. And when they fall down on the job, of course, it's the forces of darkness proliferate. So what if we kept interceding? We see all the things that are prophesied to happen in the book of Revelation. I mean, it's not just a repeat of the Egyptian plagues. It's way worse. You're talking about a greater exodus. This is going to be a greater tribulation than even what the Egyptians experienced. But how can those plagues go forth as long as the people of Adonai are interceding. It may be that there is a level of destruction 
that will take place, but he needs us to be quiet. Remember when Moses was begging to be able to go into the land? And finally, he says, don't talk to me about it anymore. Just don't talk to me. This is the way it has to be. And there are certain things prophesied in Revelation. They simply have to be in order to destroy the strongholds of the enemy, in order to reinstate the fear, the reverence of Adonai in the world that he created. And so intercession to the otherwise could possibly hamper that process. You know, it's always disputed, you know, where it says in 2 Thessalonians for that day will not come until he be taken out of the way. And it's always the big topic of debate. Who is the the one being taken out of the way? Is it the Holy Spirit? Uh, Some people think it's a rapture. There's books written pretty much about that verse. But I think there might be some merit to it when it comes to silencing or sealing up the lips of the, the believers for about half an hour. Because what they need to see, you know, is just be quiet. Why are you going to be quiet? So that you can see and so you can hear. And I believe they're going to see the destruction of the enemy at that point. I think they're going to see the equivalent of the sea uh, splitting in two or the Jordan splitting and and having this um, dry land to cross over. I think that's where they're truly going to walk into their inheritance. That's kind of a study unto itself. But I, I did want you to refresh yourself on the parallels, because remember, if you you want to know about the greater Exodus, you go back to the the first one. There is possibly a deeper meaning to entering the land. We know Israel was entering the physical land of Israel, but remember there were stones set up. There were representative stones set up uh, for each tribe. And of course they wrote the Torah and they set these stones up and they become like a mezuzah. You know, just like you have a mezuzah on your house, you needed to pass by this rock that had the Torah on it in order to enter into Israel. And remember, when we say enter into Israel, we mean in the biblical sense. You can fly into Tel Aviv. That's not what we're talking about. The the entrance to Israel in spiritual realms is going to be to cross the Jordan. And it's, I mean, you can see the place today. It's very near Jericho. In fact, you can see a lot of things that are significant from that particular spot. But it was important to set up a mezuzah at their gateway so that people would understand there's more here than meets the natural eye. And because it's spiritual, there is it's it's easier to see the fusion of the spiritual and natural in Israel. The Garden of Eden is said to hover just above it. And so there's a higher standard there. When you have entered into covenant with the Holy One, if you don't live according to that covenant, it spits you back out, which is really strange to me. Uh, I mean, it's not one of those questions I would probably ask if Yeshua, you know, took hands, but (laughs) it seems interesting to me that these wicked Canaanites, Amorites, and so forth, they could remain in the land at, at terrible levels of sin, but yet Israel would get kicked out when they fell into apostasy or when they fell into hatred, say, in the first century. He's much less patient. I mean, he's very patient. I mean, he puts up with stuff hundreds of years before he seems to mete out the worst of the judgments. But 
why is it that, that say, a, a Canaanite king or that a giant, you know, talk about, oh, there's giants in the land. Why is it that these would be allowed to remain in the land? Well, I think it goes back to you have a higher obligation when you make covenant, when you engage in that, that covenant at Sinai and say, we will do and we will hear. I think there's a much higher level of obligation. Therefore, it means there the land is less likely to tolerate apostasy, idolatry, sexual immorality, thefts, murders, those sorts of things. And so knowing that, putting these mezuzah, these rocks, mezuzot, at the doorway, the spiritual doorway to Israel was to remind the Israelites and the nation of their ultimate goal. They were supposed to be a light to the nations. They were supposed to guide the way back home with the light and the lamp of the word. They couldn't be allowed to endure in that land in a state of apostasy because that's a mixed message. When you're not living according to the light and the lamp of the word in the land, it's not a light to the nations to guide them back home. But when we have obedience to the word, then we have a an ideal situation. We have Israel not just in the natural land, but we have them very close to that spiritual realm that's hovering above it, that realm that Yeshua came to restore us to, so that when we die, we can resurrect and we can have bodies just like his. We can pass between the spiritual and natural realm that we know is there. We know the spiritual realm is there. We know the Garden of Eden is just there, but we can't see it without a resurrected body, unless like in the prophets, you know, they could have visions and so forth. But for the most part, most of us are going to have to wait until the resurrection to be able to see what we already see. We know it's there. We sense it's there. If you're in the land, especially you can sense it's there. You, you can't deny it. If if you have the the least bit of inclination toward obedience and uh the Ruach HaKodesh. Uh, but when Israel obeys, they're functioning in their covenant and it opens the door to blind eyes. That's important because when wickedness prevails, think of the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. The men were trying to find the angels in Lot's house. And it says they looked all night. They went around and around the house looking for the door and they couldn't find the door. Even if it was a fairly good sized house, there's no reason they shouldn't find the door. Five minutes, most people can walk around a house, especially the tiny houses like they had back then. Don't tell me they couldn't find the door if that was a natural blindness. But if it was a spiritual blindness, they would never find it. But this is what obedience to the word does. For those who don't want to be blind, for those who don't want to live in wickedness, Israel in obedience can open the door to blind eyes. And this is the function of the mezuzah. One of the functions of a mezuzah is like, it's, it's stating that when you come in here, there's a higher obligation, but there's a higher reward too. Here's an example. We'll use the rule of first mention. When we look at the Jordan as the official crossing point into the land, not just to be in the natural land, but to enter into your inheritance. Remember, not everybody who is a child will inherit. So here in Genesis 13, 10, it says, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw all the valley of the Jordan, 
that it was well watered everywhere. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord. So before Sodom and Gomorrah, that area resembled the Garden of Eden. And this was the Valley of the Jordan. So we can see now that the Jordan has some connection to the Garden of Eden. So much so that even Lot, when he lifted up his eyes, and that's the key right there, when it says somebody lifted up his eyes, that means he saw into a spiritual realm or he saw future. He, he might be seeing prophetically. That's, that's a key phrase right there. So Lot is able to lift up his eyes and he looks at the valley of the Jordan that it's well watered everywhere. And it was like the garden of the Lord. He's able to see what is hovering just above the land of Israel and that this is a well watered place. And here's what you know about Eden. You have to go back and reread chapter two if you're not familiar with it, but it's a, it's a different explanation. Chapter one is linear. It's chronological. Day one, days one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. But chapter two is given to you in a circular pattern, like I showed you the graphic last week of the rivers of Eden. It was watered from an upper Eden. And you have a, a main river that descends. And to descend in Hebrew is uh, Yerod. Yerod, it descended. And you can hear the root of Yarden there. So there will be something about the Jordan that will represent the descent of the upper garden rivers to the lower garden. And the rabbis did even more investigation, and they say that this main river, we're not saying that is the Jordan River, but we're saying the Jordan River has definitely something to do with how it descends. The main river was thought to emanate from beneath the throne, from beneath the throne. And then from that upper Eden, where he had made his throne in one of those heavens, it descended down to the third heaven, which we know is the Garden of Eden. And then from there, uh, Eden was able to give drink to the its whole garden with these four rivers. Right, the the Euphrates, the Parat River descends down from the upper Eden from the throne, and it divides out into four. It, it literally says four heads. And although today people are always on some quest to find the rivers of Eden so they can figure out where Eden is, I think they're on a I don't want to say a fool's mission. I don't want to call anybody a fool, but I, I think they're missing the point here. That realm is hidden. There are rivers in the natural realm that reflect them. The Nile is thought to correspond to the Pishon River, which was the, the river of the outer circle. And then you've got the Gihon. And at this point, the Gihon is just a spring in Jerusalem. It used to be where the kings of Judah were anointed. They were, they were crowned king at the Gihon. Right now, it's just a spring. That would have been the, the next one in, the, the next circle inside the Pishon, that river. And then you keep going. And there's another one called the Chidekel. Uh, English Bibles will say the Tigris. And so there is a Tigris river. There is a natural Tigris river, uh, very close to the Euphrates, which corresponds to the river that descended from the throne. Remember Euphrates or Parat in Hebrew, it means fruitful. 
And that's going to be the characteristic of all four rivers. Out from the fruitful river, you are also going to have um, the different kinds of fruits and fruit trees that you see in the Garden of Eden. So the Nile is correlated to the Pishon, the Gihon to the Gihon, and then the Chidekel to the Tigris. But today, you don't go there in the natural realm to find the Garden of Eden. You wouldn't even want to try to find out where they intersected or where they got really close. You're, you're kind of missing the point when you do that. That realm, of course, is, is thought to be withdrawn because of sin. When Adam and Eve sinned, in a sense, they fell out of that realm. And so now when somebody sins, we say they're fallen. And so that became concealed to the natural eye. But it's thought to be no higher than a height a dove would fly. And again, we see that picture when the uh, Holy Spirit, like a dove, descends upon Yeshua when he's immersed. To a Jewish person looking on, that might ring a bell. Where is that dove coming from? Possibly from the Garden of Eden itself, which is said to house the palace of King Messiah. It's called the bird's nest or Kansipur. Makes sense why Yeshua said he, he would like to gather us as a hen gathers her little chicks, because that's the nature of his palace in rabbinic literature, the, the bird nest or the Kansipur. And it's even, there's really close studies you can do when you're reading about Noah turning the dove loose and how the first time she came back, she could find no place to set her foot. But the second time she comes back with an olive branch. And it's believed that she was actually allowed to fly into the garden, take an olive branch and fly that back to Noah, not just as a sign that there were trees sprouting in the natural earth, but as an encouragement to him that there was the plan is still in place, that humankind is still here, and there will still be a redeemer who will be able to resurrect them from the dead so that they can engage the Garden of Eden once again, where they can go out and come in the way that Yeshua did. So they could go out and come in the way that Adam and Eve did before they sinned. So maybe the height of, I don't know, <laughs> a small mountain. Sometimes in the prophets, you would hear about something called the chariots of Israel. And that's a study into itself, again, uh, has a lot to do with the, the four horsemen of Revelation, has a lot to do with the divine chariot of the four living creatures, but there's other aspects of those chariots. And so these chariots, what was Elisha's servant, he says, you know, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. What did Elisha say to Eliyahu? My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And these horsemen were associated with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the chariots were some type of transport. And there was a place for the righteous dead in the garden to wait until they were resurrected. And the patriarchs were seen as being given the job. And that's why I said, you know, my father, my father. When you say my father, my father, it probably has two implications or two different time periods when you see that repetition. So my father, Elisha talking to Eliyahu, Elisha talking to Elijah. Elijah was his spiritual father, his mentor, 
But then he looks at something else and says, my father, my father, my father. It's a, it's kind of a prophetic message right there. And so who did he see? Did he see Abraham? Did he see Isaac? Did he see Jacob? How did he recognize them? Perhaps, you know, at the resurrection or if we cross over before then, when we see these famous people from the Bible, perhaps we'll just instinctively know who they are. But if they already had that expectation that these uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were kind of the transporters, those who would help you cross over into the garden to await the resurrection, it makes sense why whatever he saw, maybe he would have associated with them. Um, So if they're in the mountains, if they're seen coming out of the mountains or on the mountains, then again, we're not talking about something out in the stratosphere. The third heaven is just above the natural earth, not that far, right? In fact, um, when we read in Thessalonians and it talks about being caught up in the air, uh, caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we ever, that air in Greek is normal air. You, It's not even as high as an airplane goes when you have to have this pressurized cabin and so forth. It's not even like that. It's air where you can still breathe normally. It's no higher than that. You say, well, how high is heaven? (laughs) Well, it's no higher than you can breathe on your own without difficulty. The, The problem we have with it is we're trying to see it spatially when really it's a realm. And that's a little spooky. You know, we, we like to hammer things down and put them in boxes and drawers and number them and alphabetize them and put them in files and Scripture doesn't always work that way because part of us is kind of not missing, but part of us is not active. There is a spiritual side of us that is being awakened over time by his word, by the Holy Spirit. But we, especially out here in the exile, we're we're working hard, but some things can only come with a progression of time. And that's why uh, the passage we've been looking at From chapter four of the Song of Songs, it compares Israel, her neck, like the Tower of David, with rows of stones set with the shields of a thousand warriors. Remember, it says the stones are in rows. Each generation has to build on the work of the last generation. And so in the same way that you can't instantly know everything about scripture just because you want to, in the same way, the generations couldn't just get to the top of the tower because they wanted to. There was a span of time that that had to be set in place for everything to fall into place. So when we talk about the greater exodus and crossing Jordan, we're getting all kinds of clues dropped in the prophecy itself. Of course, that's the Torah. And so we made this as a quick point last week, but I just want to reiterate you don't go in that realm without help, not since sin entered into human beings. We cannot cross the rivers of Eden without divine assistance. And the way that they form a barrier, we think of water as just water. But in spiritual realms, spirit is water and fire at the exact same time. How can it be water and fire at the exact same time? Well, Revelation talks about a lake of fire. How can it be a lake of fire? 
Well, it's a spiritual realm. It's it's we can't really look out in the natural world and say, uh, well, there's a lake of fire right there. I see one. No, we see a lake or we see a fire, but rarely do we see fire on the lake unless there's been an oil spill. What does this mean? Well, again, it it let's take the example of Nadav and Avi who they've done so much good <laughs> in terms of helping us understand spiritual realms through their disobedience, uh, but they're great examples. They had made it, remember they took strange fire. They didn't um, apparently take the coals from the sacrifices and they went into the holy place to offer the incense. So they were wrong in at least two ways. The fire was strange. It, It wasn't from sacrifice. And number two, that was their father's service. They usurped their father's position. Were they in an ecstasy of the spirit, experiencing everything they were experiencing? I'm sure they were. They just got caught up. But even if you're just caught up, at that level of obligation, they couldn't make mistakes. That's what I mean. Why is the standard so much higher for Israel in the land of Israel than it is for wicked people, people who are not in covenant? The standard is higher. And so Nadav and Avihu go into the holy place, and what they got away with up until that point, they could no longer get away with. And then they're burned, but apparently burned intact. In other words, they, they still got clothes on. And it's just like it was a, you know, to us, strange fire. But Adonai is saying, my fire is not strange. Your fire is strange. your rebellion is strange fire. And so there's fire will treat you in a certain way when you're obedient and fire will treat you in a certain way when you are disobedient. That's the lesson of scripture. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those who threw them into the fire died from the fire, even though they weren't in the fire. But the ones they threw in the fire were not affected, even their clothes, by the fire because they were obedient. See how the fire treated them differently? That tells you that even though the the Babylonians uh, thought they had built that fire, they were experiencing a completely different fire than what nature could make. They were experiencing a spiritual fire. And and so it was very dramatic. Well, as we look at these rivers of Eden, they are water, they are fire, they're spirit, because Yeshua identified himself with the rivers of Eden. Remember, he stands up at Sukkot and says, if you're thirsty, come to me and drink. For as it is written, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And this, it says he spoke of the spirit. So this is Messiah's palace. This is basically, he rules over this kingdom. And so these rivers are part of who he is. He sends the spirit to water the whole garden. And so to dwell in the garden is not just to live in the spirit, but to live in obedience to the king. And he said he wanted to gather us as a hen gathers his chicks. He wanted to, but he said we wouldn't do it. And he he was speaking to a generation that that was 
for the most part, losing the spirit of the Torah. You even had the, the Sadducees, the Tzadikim, that didn't even believe in the resurrection of the dead. How can he take them to the nest and resurrect them if they don't even believe in the resurrection of the dead? You need to believe it before you see it. Although he did tell them, he said, you know, many will come from the east, west, north, and south and sit at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And remember, these are thought to be the horsemen of Israel, the transporters of those who will be resurrected from the dead. He tells the, the people, well, he would have to be talking to Sadducees because they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. He says, you're going to see it, but you're not going to be able to take part in it. You'll be aware of it, but you can't sit down at the table because you didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. You would need to believe in Yeshua, the living word, to believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so after death, it won't really matter what you believe. If you didn't believe in the resurrection, what does it matter after you're dead? And you find out you're wrong. It's not like do-overs. You're dead. What will you add to that? If you tried to cross, it would burn you up. You, you just can't penetrate into that garden. So remember like Lazarus. When he dies, he's taken to Abraham's bosom. Okay, there's one of our horsemen of Israel again, the, the divine chariot transporters. Takes Lazarus over to a place of comfort to await the resurrection of the dead. But the rich man is perfectly aware of Lazarus. That's why I say when you're trying to work it out in natural realms, you're, you're hitting your head up against the wall. We're talking about spiritual realms and the soul awareness, a consciousness. So the rich man is conscious of Lazarus, and it doesn't seem to him like Lazarus is that far away. He can see that he's comforted. He can see that he's in the rivers, that he has plenty of water. And so the rich man is experiencing this, this intense thirst and heat. And so there apparently is just a, a very small separation between the two, but it's explained to the rich man, you can't cross this divide. No matter what it seems like in your consciousness, there's no way that Lazarus could come to you. Because again, if, if he's seeing the rivers of Eden here, he's seeing fire. He's not just seeing water, he's seeing fire. And if he tried to swallow that fire, it would burn him up. It would kill him. Plus, Lazarus can't cross it. He's in a protected place. In this protected place where the righteous await the resurrection, um, it's a very pleasant place. They're in some realm of the garden. And they're held there. It said that they're they're held under the throne. And I believe uh, Revelation says that they're held under the altar, which is kind of the same place. As you look at how it's positioned, where Adonai's feet rest on the temple mount, right? Which I, I don't know how big his throne would be, because again, we're talking about spiritual things. But then he, he would be sitting on his throne. And then... 
where are the souls? Well, they're said to be stored under his throne, but also under the altar, which is true. I think both are true because right there would be the altar. Uh, the perimeter around the altar is called the chek in Hebrew. And chek in Hebrew is bosom. So when we talk about Abraham's bosom, again, what is that? Well, it's that perimeter around the altar. And there's actually a place on the Temple Mount to this day called the Well of Souls. But you can see like a river means something in Hebrew, burning and shining, something burning and shining. So where we think of water as being wet and cool, water is also hot <laughs> and uh, fiery at the very same time. So the Israelites need divine help. If they're even going to cross in, to the natural land of Israel because, again, of the extra obligation that's on them to be a light to the nations and because of what's hovering just above it, that they're to be the light of the spirit that's hovering over the land. In fact, it says, I don't know, he never takes his eyes off of that land. The eyes are another symbol of the Holy Spirit. So the Israelites needed divine assistance to cross that river because of all the implications of what they were about to do. They were about to press into inheritance. So in the same way, you and I were saved maybe many years ago. It doesn't mean that we have yet taken our inheritance. That is going to be one of the goals of the greater exodus, not just to gather you, out of the lands of your exile, but to assemble you so that as a nation, you can cross over together. And I think this is where at the Feast of Trumpets, you know, the rabbis are getting the idea of the righteous being caught up together as one people into the cloud, a great cloud of witnesses. And at that point, you can begin to inherit. Just like Paul talked about how when, when you're a child, you don't inherit when you're a child, you have a tutor. And that tutor teaches you everything you need to know as you grow up. And then when you're grown, when you're mature, that's when you will begin to inherit and manage the property. And so that's what we're talking about is, is the goal of the Exodus is for us to be a spiritually mature people when we cross over. He doesn't want us to wait till we get there. I'm pretty sure there's remedial classes somewhere, but he wants us to work. He wants us to serve in the garden. Remember, there is no plan B. There's only plan A. It just takes a little longer. If the original job description was to tend the garden, to work in the garden and to guard it, that's still going to be the job. If we want our inheritance in the land, that's still the job. We have to serve him and protect that holy space. The, the crossing of the greater exodus, it was marked by this miraculous flowing backward of the Yarden River until they, they crossed over. But often, uh, you know, I think people 
they dabble into spiritual things, trying to cross over a little too soon and trying to engage these mysteries and fires of the spirit, just like Nadav and Avihu, they get caught up in the ecstasy of it and they're not really considering the price and the cost for that realm is obedience. And that's why they needed these mezuzot, these huge stones with the Torah written on them, so that not only would they remember how to comport themselves in the land of Israel, but that strangers who came would also know what the rules were. That's important. So we have stones of witness. And again, do we see something similar in the book of Revelation? Well, it does talk about the drying up of the Euphrates. Again, if we look at the Euphrates in the natural realm, then you think, well, okay, the Euphrates, I don't know why the Euphrates would need to be dried up in order for the kings of the east to cross. It's not like in the olden days where a river would be a legitimate barrier to an army. Nowadays, they just throw some pontoons across it and cross it. It's You don't have to dry up a river to lure an army across it. So I believe there's a, a depth of meaning there, or maybe a height of meaning in spiritual realms, because as you'll see, the Euphrates, remember it descended from the upper garden, from the throne, flowed down into the lower garden, and there it divided out into the other rivers. Well, this is something different than the Reed Sea or even the Yarden drying up. This is the source river itself drying up. And so again, I, I wonder, is this another way of saying, just like this, the sealing of the saints and so forth, and it talks about silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I believe this is because there, there is destruction being rolled out that he doesn't want us interfering with. These things have to happen. I've wondered too, if this, this drying up the Euphrates, is this a spiritual movement so that the powers of wickedness will be lured into believing that they can take the land? This, the powers of wickedness believing that Adonai's help is no longer there, that there is no more spiritual source for Israel, and believing that, that he has cut them off, they would try to come in and either take the natural land or take the people of the land or both. And so for a moment, it might be pretty dark. If he, you know, whether we're talking about in the natural realm, I don't think it would be that big a deal. But if in the spiritual realms, he kind of brings things to a halt all of a sudden, or even if it's only what they're seeing, because they don't have spiritual eyes. Remember the, the sodomites? The house was right there. The door was right there. But they were spiritually blind. They couldn't see it. So what might be perfectly visible to someone of faith might be unseen or perceived differently by a wicked person. So I don't know that we can nail down and just reduce that down to some military action in a natural realm. I think that'd be a huge mistake. Just, you know, common sense would tell you that drying up the Euphrates is not going to be an enticement in the natural realm. But when we start talking about spiritual realms, when it looks like Euphrates, which remember it's parat or fruitful, when it looks like the fruitfulness of Israel has been cut off, that they've lost their heavenly source, their heavenly connection, it might be a, 
a ruse. I don't know if ruse is the right word to use, but it might be an enticement like Pharaoh. Come on over. You think you can follow them in there? Come on over. Come on in and see what happens. You're going to get burned up. You know, water is fire and fire is water in spiritual realms. You won't make it. You don't make it across those rivers without divine assistance. But this is what Israel has promised. Blessed shall you be when you come in and blessed shall you be when you go out. That's from Deuteronomy 28.6. Those stones of witness that the national mezuzah, the international mezuzah, it's not just for Israel, it's for the nations as well. As the nations approach, they need to know what the requirements are. And then if they can meet those requirements, then they can come up and worship. This is what Zechariah prophesies. They can come up and worship at Sukkot. They can begin this process of obedience. But what will they see as they enter? The stones of witness. And it said that the stones were inscribed with the commandments in the 70 languages of the nations so that they could learn it because it was said it was offered to all nations at Sinai, but there was only a remnant from those nations that wanted the covenant. Only Israel as an entire people said, we will do and we will hear. So he's always made a way for that remnant to come in, to join themselves to Israel. But for anyone else who wanted admittance, they couldn't pretend they weren't warned. If you're going to come in here, these are the requirements. You have to serve the Holy One. You have to obey the Holy One. These aren't our rules, they're His. These are the rules we live by. These are the house rules. If you want to come to the house of prayer for all nations, these are the rules. You can't mix it with all your other stuff. So the the mezuzahs, both for the people coming in, and then it reminds Israel when they go out, when they start taking the word out to the nations and preparing them to come up, they're reminded too. But to, to dwell in that land, you must dwell according to that covenant, and there will even be blessing in it. And apparently, like Yeshua, we'll be able to go in and out of that realm. To the natural eye, we would be disappearing from sight at times. But then we could come back out into the natural realm, just according to what mission he has us doing. Now, according to the Torah, what about those seven nations who were inhabiting the the natural land? They could have been permitted to remain as protected strangers if they'd repented. Instead, they were to be annihilated because they had no intention of obeying the covenant. It also says the the Gentile nations sent scribes to copy the Torah from the stones, but they never improved their deeds. The rabbinic tradition of these great stones being written in the 70 languages, the the Torah in those 70 languages, again, it's going to link to the tongues in Acts chapter 2, which occurs at Shavuot, which commemorates the giving of the Torah, where the remnant from the nation says, oh, we want to, but only one nation as a nation said, we will. What does he do? He's always made a, a way for them to come in. And here it's like the door just swings open wide and he says, come on in. But here are the commandments. This is the mezuzah. These are the commandments. And ultimately, I think, especially as we get into the more apocalyptic prophecies of Revelation, those stones of witness are going to inform the nations that God's anger is kindled because of their idol worship, because of their abominations. And that's important for them to know. Maybe these kings of the East 
believe they can introduce their wickedness, their idol worship, their immorality, their abominations. Maybe they believe they can introduce it into these holy spaces that we know they can't. They'll they'll believe they can, but they can't. Okay, so remember our our first event there was Jacob crossing the Jordan, going back home with his 11 out of 12 sons at that point. Benjamin was still kind of in the oven or in the thought process, maybe. But at least Benjamin was still within his mom and dad. So he crossed too. When Jacob would have crossed over, if he crossed over at the same time as the Israelites did later, it would have been during the month of Nisan. And so the the Yarden is a raging, rushing river at that time of year. It settles down through the summer. But at that point, you've got all that melting mountain snow of Lebanon flowing down there. Uh, So it really was a huge deal. I mean, it was memorable. If you've ever seen Jordan low, you're thinking, what would be the big deal? But in the spring, when all that water is rushing through, it's, it's a much bigger deal to visualize. So from the 12 stones they set up at this crossing of the Yarden, Joshua then takes the 12 stones and takes them to Mount Ebal. Remember, they did the blessing and the cursing, Gerizim and Ebal. And then it says in Joshua 4, 9, that he erected 12 stones in the Yarden where the Israelites crossed. He actually left them in the river. It says, then Joshua set up 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan the yard and at the place where the feet of the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant were standing, and they are there to this day. I wouldn't be surprised if those were found. Maybe the, the plaster's gone, but I believe they're still there. And the sages say that each stone, it, this was absolutely a miraculous ceremony because a single representative of the, the individual tribe could carry his stone with the Torah on it. I mean, that had to be a big rock. And they say that the entire congregation accompanied them to Mount Gerizim. And of course, Joshua erected a stone altar there. They had a feast. They had rejoicing. And they inscribed the Torah on the stones of the altar in all 70 primary languages, dismantled the altar, brought them to Gilgal, where Joshua erected them as a monument all in one day. They say this all happened in one day, physically impossible but they weren't necessarily confined to physical space. When they start crossing Jordan, there's spiritual things happening. And that's going to be in addition to the 12 stones they placed in the Yarden. And Joshua told them in chapter 4, verse 24, what the point of it was, so that all the peoples of the earth would know the hand of Hashem, that it is mighty. So when we cross the Yarden, again, it's going to be observable. The nations are going to be able to observe this in some way. The stones of witness going through this process of of setting up the stones. So the nations, they'll be able to look and they'll see where we went. They can see where we went over. They can observe that from the outside, but they won't be confused as to how do you go through there? It's not the same as the Reed Sea Crossing. It's not an exit from death. What they'll be able to see is that we have entered into inheritance. And nations, these are the rules. Through Yeshua, through faith in Yeshua, that our king would gather us as a hen gathers her chicks. And we were willing 
We prepared. This is how we crossed over. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.